to the Fromer Travel Show, and I'm so glad to be here. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. It's been a good week, so let's get right to the interviews. Today's kind of like a party. I've got three great writers on tap. Uh, The first is a woman named Melanie Kaplan, who wrote a really, really charming, fun piece for the Washington Post called John Steinbeck's Classic Travelogue Showcases Man's Best Road Trip Buddy. Well, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Melanie. So good to have you on. Thanks, Colleen. So for our listeners who have never heard of Travels with Charlie, can you tell us a little bit about that book first? Sure. Um, John Steinbeck wrote it in 1962, and it was based on a trip that he took around the country in 1960. So this was after he wrote his his more famous books. Um, like The Grapes of Wrath and... And Of Mice and Men. Of Mice and Men, yeah. Yes. And um, he took off with his poodle named Charlie... And they um, they talked to a lot of people across the country and saw sites. And it was just the two of them for some of it. And his wife joined him for, for other parts. And you found this so inspiring that you decided to take off with your dog. But your dog is not a poodle, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, I have a beagle and I had another beagle, Darwin, when I took my first cross-country drive in 2007. And I I think I had decided to do it. And somebody probably said, you've got to read this book. And so I did read it several months before I went. Rereading it recently, I realized how much it, it did inspire me. Well, how did it shape how you traveled? You know, I think I had decided to take the cross-country drive before and somebody must have said, you've got to read this book. And I think it I think it made me a little bit bolder in talking to strangers, um, which I love doing because everyone's got a story. And it also made me realize that traveling with my dog was not traveling alone. You know, people would say, are you worried about traveling by yourself? And I said, I'm not by myself. I've got my co-pilot here. So your beagle was a watchdog, a security dog as well? or <laughs> No, you know, I, I would pull over at rest stops and take a nap. And and she always sat in the front seat and looked out. So I felt like she was watching out for me. Were there any downsides to traveling with the dog? And, and let me say that that there has been some controversy in recent years about Steinbeck's book. There have been people who have said he didn't actually do everything he wrote about in the book, that some of this might have been more fiction than actual memoir. Do you think that's fair? I, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, he he was a novelist and, you know, it's it's hard to say how much was embellished or fabricated, um, but I feel like the spirit of the story is still there. And, you know, I feel like the the story still inspires and the fact that he set off with his dog, no matter how far he went or how many miles he was actually alone with a dog, it's still a special story to me. Yeah, absolutely. So were there any downsides? I know there are certain hotels that won't let you in with the dog uh, and certain parks won't let you actually walk with the dog. I think uh, that that comes as a surprise to many people. A lot of the national parks do not allow dogs. Did you find any downsides to traveling with your dog? Sure. There are things you have to take into consideration. I kind of knew which which chains allowed 
dogs. I mean, there's certain chains like Red Roof Inn and La Quinta's, maybe Days Inn, always are dog friendly. And so I just kind of knew that. And there were also some independent motels I'd stay at. And I remember some national parks. I would kind of drive in and in the parking lot, you could see some of the sites, but you couldn't go on some trails Hmm. Um, it's also tough if it's a really hot day, you know, if you're in the middle of Texas and it's 95 degrees and you've got to pull over to rest stop, you've got to um, make that a pretty quick stop. So dog's not in the car for long. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you say in the article that you mostly went on the perimeters of the United States. Why did you make that decision? You know, I had a wedding in Northern California, and so I kind of plotted out my my route to go through the Dakotas and Montana. But since then, I've probably done a half dozen trips cross country and have hit every state. Um, wow, in the continental United States. You know, through the middle and down south, and yeah. Is there one route that you would recommend over others? If, you, if somebody was going to do this for the first time? I would say it depends a lot on what time of year it is. This time sure. of year, I would take the Southern route for sure. I love going through Fargo and Teddy Roosevelt National Park in Western North Dakota. And Montana is just to die for and the Pacific Northwest. Um, so I've really fallen, fallen in love with the Northern part. But, um, but I also love, you know, going right through... Kansas and Colorado and and the South too. So yeah. Before we leave, before we leave that, you you do call out Montana in your article as well. What is it about Montana that makes it such a special state? I think it's just so open. You know, you've got um, it's big sky country, and it sure really is. The sky just goes on forever. It's it's. Beautiful. You just have to go see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have. I've been. I've been there when we went to Yellowstone. We we drove through Montana, and you're right. I mean, I'd heard the phrase "big sky," but I didn't really know what that meant until I went there. And it's like you're on a different planet in a way to have the sky so expansive on all sides of you. It feels more like a dome right. than it usually does to me. Yeah. Anyway, I, I uh, get very excited when I past the Mississippi River. And I feel like, all right, now I'm in the Western half and it just looks very different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your article spoke to me because I'm a new dog owner. And when I take my dog out to the country and I can take her off leash and just let her run around, she has such joy in doing that, that it gives me this lift. It just makes me happier watching her jump here and there. We don't even have to be doing anything. Just just seeing her take such delight in being out in nature. I think it makes me notice things more and look for the things that I know will delight her, like a stick. Sticks are so great. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. I'm so happy for you. Now you guys have to travel. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know if mine, my, she, she, she gets a little car sick sometimes. I don't know if mine will take to it as well as yours do. Mine's a golden doodle. Do you think beagles are particularly well suited to travel? Oh, I don't, I don't think so. But I know some dogs prefer the car more than others. You know, I, I think for me and my dog, it's just seeing new things just really makes me feel 
alive. I mean, we've all been home so much recently and anything new, even if it's just a new road or a new sight out of the windshield or a new smell in a different park for the dog is, um, is really exciting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the simple things right now. And you can definitely experience those with the dog. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. I so enjoyed your article in the Washington Post. Many congratulations. Thank you. Take care. Once again, that was Melanie Kaplan. Our next guest is Sean Meads Williams, who wrote a very moving piece for another newspaper, The Independent. And its its headline tells the story, although she'll go into much more depth about what it means. The headline of that piece was, What It's Like to Be an Agoraphobic Travel Writer During Lockdown. Okay, here's Sean. Well, welcome to the Travel Show, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I have to say, I was very moved by your article in The Independent, uh, which is about your grappling with agoraphobia, which is was a surprising thing because you are a travel writer. And let me say, you were our travel writer for many years. We're very proud to say you used to write part of the London book for Fromers, correct? Yeah, that's right. I think I did the 2012 edition many moons ago. Um, I had a lovely time doing it, actually. But yeah, it's, the articles had a really lovely response. I was I was a little bit nervous before it went live. It's quite a vulnerable piece to have written. It had a really positive response. So so tell us a little bit about this. First of all, had you ever suffered from agoraphobia before? I had a little bout of it when I first went freelance, which was 15 years ago now, I think. I think the shift in not working in an office was a really big one that I struggled with. And I I do feel like perhaps working in lockdown had a similar impact on me and perhaps triggered something that I'd dealt with before or I'd experienced before. And it it's meant that I just remember in July one day just not being able to leave the house. I was stuck in a way. Hmm. Well, I think one of the really useful things you did in the article is you defined what agoraphobia is. And I, I, if you could do that for our listeners, that would be great, because I, I think people think they know what it is, but but it may be slightly different. Yeah, it's I, I'm very used to people assuming that agoraphobia is a fear of being outside and, or a fear of open spaces. And it, that's kind of how it translates. But it really boils down to if. It's more a fear of being trapped for a lot of people. And I particularly struggled with suddenly not being able to find an exit was particularly hard for me. So all of the supermarkets having one-way systems or very specific ways in public places that you had to walk, that to me, I think I mentioned in the article, it felt like being in a hall of mirrors and with only one way out, just knowing that if I needed to leave, I couldn't. And that was incredibly stressful. But because people don't necessarily understand it, it's it's a very hard thing to explain to people, which I think it makes a lot of people kind of suffer in silence because of it. So 
and it's a really hard thing. And I think you can tell uh, by Sean's accent and by the fact that she was a writer of Fromer's London that you are in Britain and yeah. your lockdown there, I think, was a lot more serious uh, than it was here in the United States. And, and you're back on lockdown again, mm-hmm. right? Can you, can you talk a little bit about what lockdown in Britain consisted of? It was it was dramatic, um, in part because I think there's a lot of people in this country who believe that our government didn't do it soon enough. Um, so that made it much more stressful. This wasn't a gradual thing. This happened. It felt overnight. We were just given warnings that everything changed all of a sudden. And I think the first time around, which was, goodness, back in March last year, there was a sense of camaraderie and we were, watch- we were all watching the National Theatre plays and because they were streaming them online and Mm. it felt like it was going to be very short-lived and then when it wasn't I really think it started to take its toll on everybody and when summer came around we just as you I'm sure you've been to London in summer when it's just the happiest most beautiful place and yes just everyone is out enjoying themselves we're on South Bank we're having Aperol spritzes in the middle of the day. We are spilling out onto the streets of Soho from the pubs. And it is such a wonderful environment. And to have that removed, there are so many more important things about lockdown that have been a big issue for so many people. People have been struggling for work. And and it's been horrible to see so many people being sick and so many people dying. And to, to deal with something so stressful, but not have any sort of break from it or any sort of release and not being able to have a hug, which I think is feeling like you're doing the wrong thing by going for a walk in a park in a Hmm. city that is. But I think one thing that we all miss is the things that we took for granted and the casual element. And, you know, I live, I live in a busy part of London and suddenly not being able to enjoy the reasons that you live here is it's it's a really strange thing and it was an adjustment that we weren't ready for and I think for the most part everybody is happy to do it I am not complaining about the necessity of lockdown at all I think right. it's incredibly important I think we should have done it a lot earlier a lot for a lot longer than we did um our government was encouraging us all to get out to restaurants we were essentially Hmm. being paid to go and eat dinner out um and it and it had such an impact the back and forth we've had I feel is a lot harder to have dealt with than not at all so this caused you to have agoraphobia Uh, you you didn't want to leave your house how did you finally get over that it was a step-by-step process I think I realized that forcing myself out of the flat was not going to help. And, you know, I'm stubborn and I am willful. And I just kept on thinking, if I can just get to the end of the road, I'll be fine after that. And and I wasn't. I was really struggling. I could, I could leave the house for a short while with my husband. But on my own, I was really struggling. And I sought therapy. I spoke to my GP. And I... I was all set up to have therapy on the NHS. They knew how much I was struggling, but it was just going to take too long to arrange because they've just been inundated with people who are struggling so much because of the pandemic. So I saw a private therapist, which I'm lucky enough to be in a position to do. We 
we took it very, very slowly. And it's kind of like exposure therapy, I think. It was part of CBT, uh, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. It was a way to make me stop the triggers that caused me to have panic attacks. So we'd see if I could sit outside for five minutes or go for a walk for 10 minutes and then build up and build up. And one of the things I mentioned in the piece was how important it was for me to notice where I was and notice my surroundings. And the first few weeks of being out trying this therapy, I would stand outside for five minutes and then I'd be like, right, I'm done, back, I can go inside. And I'd almost run home because mm. I completed it. And once I start, stopped doing that and started being present, and noticing stuff, something really switched. And I think that was very much the inspiration for the piece that you read in The Independent. Yeah. And I thought that actually, I I hope this doesn't sound, what's the word, insensitive, uh, but I, I thought that what got you back was kind of an element of the travel experience that when you're really traveling well, you're present in the place, you're, you're noticing things, you're letting the place uh, work on you in a way. And even though you were at home, it was because of your agoraphobia in a certain way, it was almost like you were traveling out from your home because yes. of the lockdown. It was, it feels like I've got to know my area again. Um, and I live in Islington, which is a lovely area of London. It's a really nice place to be. And I think I was so frustrated that I I was missing it. We were talking about whether, my husband and I were talking about whether or not we were going to have to move from the area because um, mm. uh, we're looking at buying a house. And we couldn't quite believe that the last six months of us living in an area that we love that is so much fun to explore and be curious about. We'd spent all of it indoors and I right. felt like it all changed. And I was just, when I could get out, I was just remembering what it was that I loved about the area. And we got married down the road. And hmm. so walking, walking down the little side streets where we had our wedding photos is such a lovely thing to do. But also I, I mentioned in the, in the piece that, there is a townhouse absolutely full to the brim of um, 1950s jukeboxes. Apparently it belongs to a de- uh, an official dealer. But you just walk past a row of streets and then there's one just covered in jukeboxes through the window. And it's a <laughs> thing. And six months ago, I don't think I'd have noticed that when I was walking by desperately trying to pretend I was somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a it's a really lovely, moving piece. Uh, many thanks for appearing on the Travel Show, Sean. I'm I'm glad we we got to reconnect. <laughs> yes, absolutely, and and I'm glad as well that I'm in a space now where I can talk about it and feel better about it. I think yeah, it's something that the the piece really resonated with a lot of people. But I think the positivity is. It, it wasn't permanent, um, which is a huge relief, but I think helpful to a lot of people. So I hope that resonates. That- absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. Let me say at this point that I highly recommend not only listening to these interviews, obviously I recommend that, but reading the articles that they're based on because they go into more depth than we can on this show. 
And our next guest, another Washington Post writer, her name is Molly O'Brien, wrote an article about how the hotel landscape is changing and changing pretty radically uh, that I think could shape your next vacation. It's called Why Some Seasonal Hotels Across the U.S. Are Staying Open Year Round. Okay, here's Molly. Welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Molly. Thank you for having me. So I always hate bifurcating the world into two camps, but when it comes to destination hotels, there are some that are open year-round, and then there are some that really only get visitors during one certain season. But like so much else in life, coronavirus has turned that formulation on its head, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think that we've all seen how dynamic and flexible the travel industry has been able to be throughout this pandemic. Well, some some parts of it, yes, and some some parts have had to go into into hibernation. So in your recent article for the Washington Post, you talked about some hotels that either because of of slower earlier seasons in the year or because of demand decided to stay open year-round, something they never do. Yes, absolutely. So these hotels have extended their seasons in one way or another, I think in order a lot of times to keep employees on site and employed, as employees are oftentimes like family at these properties. And then also the property teams started to notice that booking interest wasn't declining with the changing season in the fall. So due to the, these people's desires to find someplace outdoors, it's an escape. It, these are outdoor-friendly properties that open that kind of escape, that offer that kind of escape. Yeah, but some of them are in places that are crazy cold in the winter. I mean, there's a reason people go to Nantucket in the summer. It's this rock in the middle of the Atlantic. It it gets blasted with cold, cold weather. Uh, but yet one of the hotels there will be now open into deep winter. How are they going to make that palatable for guests? Definitely. That's a great question. So that specific property, the Veranda House, has designed new wellness packages that are very personalized to each guest's experience, which is how they're drawing guests to that specific property. And many of the other properties have developed a specific variety of seasonal offerings, such as cookie decorating classes and some moors making kits. Um, The Otasaga Resort Hotel, um, which is one of the other properties that I was speaking with, developed a special curl up and unwind package, which is designed to get people cozy with the property team's signature handcrafted hot chocolate mix. They can curl it by a fire. And another property, the Cape Arundel Inn and Resort has pivoted specifically to buyouts so that people can take as much space as they want, do whatever they want to do on property and just have a an escape, a winter intimate escape. Can you uh, define buyouts? What does that mean? Definitely. So a buyout is when people are buying out these entire properties. They're making it their own for a specific amount of time. And they want to have somewhere that is specifically their own to go have a getaway. And they want it to be somewhere that's usually secluded in nature. So this specific property is in Maine. um, And they are able to have that entire property themselves for their vacation. That must be crazy expensive, isn't it? I think it varies depending on what property, but that would be um, 
that would be something that would be a particularly luxurious experience. Now, you had one place that you uh, talked about in the piece where usually they have people in their cabins year round, but they also have RVs on site. But this year they're keeping both open, I guess, because the demand is so high. Yes, absolutely. So River Run in Granby, Colorado, they are seeing an increased demand in RV trips, which that was another piece that I actually wrote for the Washington Post back in September was how people should prepare for um, traveling in their motorized vehicles for these extended trips, living the van life in the winter. So River Run took advantage of in October, they started off extending their bookings for their RV hubs. Um, They're letting people pull up with their RVs and their campers and hooking up and They're an ideal destination for skiing and winter sports, so it's a perfect accommodation if these are the types of winter activities that you're into. Well, I guess that leads me to my last question, which is, do you think this is going to be a COVID-only development, something that we're only going to see this year for these hotels? Or are, are travelers thinking differently about travel, and do you think that will last into the future? I absolutely think that if business continues to be as steady and successful as I've been told by these properties it's been, there will be no reason not to replicate these extended offerings in the future. And I'm excited to see how these properties take what they've been doing this year and replicate it when it is safer to travel and when group bookings can be increased and things start to go back to what will be this sort of new normal. Yeah, new normal. I want the normal, normal back. (laughs) But until then, it's really nice to know that these types of facilities exist. I mean, the the photos in the piece were gorgeous. And it, it looked like places had found a way to make the off season hugely appealing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that we're all kind of craving any kind of escape right now. I think a lot of people that would normally go on international vacations or go somewhere far away and they're sticking closer to home. This is a fantastic alternative. Right. And it's a fantastic article. Thank you so much for appearing on The Travel Show. Thank you, Pauline. And that wraps up this week's show. We're so grateful you listened. Let me say, as I have maybe too many times in the past, but we really hope you'll visit us at Fromers.com as well as listening to this podcast. We have some very interesting articles this week up about, for example, the very first cruise line to require proof of vaccine from passengers who are wanting to book for the future. Uh, That may be the way of the world soon. We have another one up about the beauty of Croatia. That's just a kind of a bucket list look with some gloriously beautiful photos of that splendid country. We have a very disturbing article about the fact that because it's so difficult to get tests in many places, a lot of folks are finding out ways to fake their test results so that they can board planes. Uh, And we know that at least one of those people had the virus. Uh, So that's an article that you're going to want to read. It's about what governments need to be doing to crack down on this type of dangerous behavior. I don't want to end on that unhappy note. We have some funny ones up there too, uh, and some ones with gorgeous photography. We have one about uh, the best underwater photography of 2020. And it, it you forget how alien 
and beautiful life under the seas is. And there are some spectacular photos showing just that, places that look like they should be on another planet. Anyway, I'm going to stop babbling and let you get back to your lives. Hopefully those lives will involve travel again soon. Fingers crossed. But even if you're just traveling from the kitchen to the living room, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching cable.